0: Everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else.
1: Again, hold them back. Submit yourself to one all powerful absolute wrong. sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural You're philosopher.
0: called this Leviathan. I like shapeshifters, only a lot
1: more in the <laughs> Eastern folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so
2: Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network, where we discuss political science and popular
1: culture, as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodham.
2: Today we are going to be taking another bit of a break from our uh, Ideologies series, Um, sorry guys, don't shout at me, Um, because (laughs) we are going to be discussing some international relations stuff mainly the idea of mutually assured destruction or MAD. But this um, uh, episode is much more exciting because we have our second guest, um, a friend of ours, Kyle T., who is from South Africa. Um, He was a colleague of ours when we were at university and uh, used to debate with us. And he's also the next uh, Elon Musk because he's coming from South Africa. So, Kyle, (laughs) would you like to tell us a bit about yourself?
0: Well, firstly, thanks very much for inviting me onto the show. I didn't realize I was only the second guest. I feel quite privileged, uh, but also <laughs> offended, obviously, for not being the first. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, so I, I studied engineering um, and bioengineering. Uh, I have a fair love of uh, theory and uh, particularly uh, your kind of decision making theory but in my work i'm an app developer so i do android and ios development which is kind of a far cry from this so it's nice to get the opportunity to uh, to to chat to you guys about something that's yeah, maybe a little more out. theoretical <laughs> 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 well you know <laughs> money money is money money yeah, is
1: see, money d- yes
0: when you're, sure. when
1: you're in the debating circles you're not supposed to be earning money we were holding out hope for you to become a successful poor
0: debater. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, know you left were... us for. I'm still holding out hope to become a a a debater full time after making my money, but you know what? That's looking less and less likely. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear!
2: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know so if Peter... I would want to be debating full time.
1: Um... No, but Peter, you were, you were a bit. Uh... I mean, Carl didn't debate against us. Carl debated and defeated us. And oh I yes, think we can count on one hand <laughs> the number of times we overcame him and his partner Lawrence.
2: Yeah, the, when we were at uh, when we were part of the debating society, uh, Carl and Lawrence were kind of like our. Well, not even our rivals; they were who we aspired to be rivals against. Would you say her, uh,
0: more like mentors, really? <laughs> wise, wise old mentors. No, you—you uh, you guys were really excellent. I, I always felt that you—you uh, you put up a challenge, especially when we. Um, uh, as we got on in years, and you kind of came <laughs> up through your studies, and you started to you started to get more savvy in your political theory, it started to become less and less based in the real world, and we started making very academic arguments altogether, I think. I think Everybody it's else we couldn't
2: st- follow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think
1: we often had these sidelined debates that uh, included a little too much political theory, but you could tell, as we grew to appreciate conservative arguments a bit better, I think we we're able to leave our liberal selves behind.
0: Yeah, the, speaking of the which, I, I really enjoyed your um, conservatism versus liberalism, zombies, vampires episode from a couple of weeks back. Um, also, wicked choice of intro sequence. I'm a big fan of uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad nice. that
2: uh, you enjoyed it. Uh, we got a bit of criticism for that one. Um, yeah. And well, wasn't I can't because take credit you had to do all those retractions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, um, of course <laughs> But thank you, that's awesome, I'm glad that uh, somebody liked it Fucking internet assholes <laughs> <laughs> um, But before we go down too much of this uh, nostalgic track um, we, As I said, we're going to be discussing uh, the, the Watchmen um, Which is a movie and comic book uh, written by Alan Moore So that's very exciting But before we do that, let's get into our Podcaster of the Month and um, I'm sure that many of you have noticed that uh, the Agora Podcast Network has launched a new website, um, which allows you to oh, subscribe. Oh, such a cool
1: website!
2: Yep, it allows you to subscribe directly to the um, different podcasts, which is pretty cool. But our podcaster of the month is Reconsider again, um, because we're actually recording more podcasts these days, which is good. Um, and Reconsider is uh, hosted by Xander and Eric. Who do a similar podcast to this, where they're discussing politics, but uh, rather than discussing really important things like Star Trek and um, Watchmen, they discuss things <laughs> that uh, I don't think are that important, like history and uh, you know actual policy. You know, but who cares about that? That it doesn't really have any impact on us. <laughs> um, what, so, if you want
1: what to, history would we have if we didn't have <laughs> Age of Empires? Exactly. Nobody would know. about
2: I learned all my history from Age of Empires. <laughs> Convert an elephant to Christianity? They t- that totally <laughs> 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 Um But yes, guys, go give them a listen. Um, it's, their 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 podcast so far have been very interesting. They've been doing quite a lot of stuff on um, on what Trump has been doing, uh, and uh, we might jump onto that bandwagon as well eventually. But uh, for In now,
1: fact, I think we're planning an episode with them fairly soon on the uh, the legitimacy of the statements. So yes, absolutely. Yeah,
2: but for now, let's get into The Watchmen. So I so th- who,
1: who of us actually watched the film at the, at the theatre? I did. I did.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> Didn't you? Out no. Of interest, no. I, uh, I wanted to just say, out of interest, have either of you read the graphic novel? Because I haven't, but uh, a friend of mine did tell me about the ridiculous ending to that involving the giant alien squid.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, I've read I've read the graphic novel, and uh, to a certain extent, I think I, I think I prefer the graphic novel to the movie. Um, I think they yeah, deal with the issues because I and I watched the movie first, so it's usually unusual to be like you know, oh, I like the novel better um, when you read it after the after watching the film. But I think they deal with the issues like the moral subtleties of the story better in the graphic novel, but probably because mm. they've got more space. I mean, it's a thick, you know a whole bunch of I think it's 12 issues
1: um, and they they cover quite a range of all the implications of of each character's behavior mm. so you know like Raw Sex Journal will be making it into um, being covered by that, that newspaper yeah um, and the, you know and how Jupiter's development as a lover and as a you know as a, as a child one of the other villains develops and grows up into her identity like they really go into a lot of depth with each character and the implications of their decisions and their identities, which is it's kind of attempted, especially in the director's cut of the film. So I mm-hmm. you know, the 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 lengthened director's cut, which I thought was pretty good. Um, but uh, I yeah, I don't think they it really captured all of what could, could be offered in the, in the graphic novel. But I haven't I haven't uh, I haven't read it myself.
2: But it's also I mean it's difficult. You know, Watchmen is a blockbuster. They have to, you know, they've got two hours to get this thing out. You know, there's a lot of action scenes which are cool. I, you know, I like them. Um, obviously, they spent a huge amount of money CGI in Doctor Manhattan's dick, which is cool. You know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the comic books, there's a lot of like background story. So you, you know, they in the in the graphic novel they tell the origin stories of each of the Minutemen. Which you can't do in a movie, like, unless you're the Spider-Man franchise, in which case every movie you just retell Spider-Man's uh, origin. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, but I, I, I enjoyed both. Um, I know some diehard fans of the uh, graphic novel hate the movie. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I think that, that we, as nerds we can probably be a bit uh, precious sometimes when it comes to the things we love. Uh, I, I enjoyed both of them. And yeah, like a giant squid at the end is a bit silly, obviously.
0: Um, So essentially the, the major conflict or the major moral decision, the dilemma that you're faced with at the end is the fact that the... Uh, Ozymandias, the smartest man in the world, has come up with a plan to save the world, to save humanity from itself. And the way mm. to do that is to blow up New York, uh, either with a monster or with a form of Dr. Manhattan's power, and thereby create an enemy for the world to unite against, because he recognizes mm. that human nature sucks, and therefore we need an enemy to face in order to unite us. And the controversy is, uh, so this is a total lie, he's clearly done something that's absolutely evil, um, but is it absolutely evil if it's expedient? If the outcome is that humanity can be at peace, then has he done the right thing? I would say that's mm. the central dilemma. Yes, precisely. And our uh, the narrator, Rorschach, um, or Rorschach, I don't know, depending on how, whether you want to go for the, the test or you want to go for the American character. Um, but, uh, you know, he, um, to, to borrow a phrase earlier from Peter is a moral absolutist. I believe that one of the phrases, at least that you get in the movie is no compromise, even in the face of, uh, apocalypse or destruction, something yeah. to that extent. Um, and, and therefore he is, is not willing to budge on that. And that seems irrational uh, in the face of a potentially united humanity. Mm.
1: No, that irrationality is, I think, is so um, opaque in the book. They really bring that to light. They show how irrational, on many levels, on the individual level of you know the of Ozymandias as a delusional villain, the mastermind, um, they show irrationality in the group levels, um, showing how that potentially the small group of villains could be claiming to just uphold their own sense of justice um, and they really actually aren't considering the full scope of reason that could be used in the in the, in the the state law system uh, and is easily justifiable in the state legal system um, and there's really rationality on a broad scale as well when you look at how the entire um, citizen population of the United States reacts to the to discovering that these um, vigilantes, these costume vigilantes, are running around trying to inflict their own sense of justice, that they seem a bit irrational response, and you know, and violently uprising, and uh, most of the time trying to get them to stop, and then other times trying to support them, um, but the, the, because of the violence and because of the uh, the extremist support or, or discouragement of what these vigilantes stand for. Then uh, you sort of see that irrationality come up, um, you know, at a large group level.
2: Well, I, and I think, I mean, in, in the movie you have these uh, the the Minutemen who are the original vigilantes, and that's what really sets this universe apart from ours is that you have a, a group of people who have taken the law into their own hands. So immediately you're like, "Fuck the rule of law! Let's just go kick people in the face." Um, but you know, as these Minutemen keep going and like you get into the character of uh, the comedian, um, who is kind of, you know, I'm, I'm sure that he would, you know, he was um, inspired by the Joker, um, who is this person who is completely detached from moral norms and values. And, you know, everything to him is a, is a joke that anything should be taken seriously. Um, and he, you know, he, if he comes across a criminal, he just beats the shit out of them. And I suppose at the end of the day, that's the same question, you know. Like, what do you want at the end of the day? You want to establish world peace. You want to establish a peaceful society. Um, you you want to live a good a good life. Is it okay to use those kind of tactics in order to establish that kind of life?
0: Um, I wanted to say the comedian for me is a, quite a fascinating character because he seems to be largely one of the most rational ones in the story. Ostensibly, the reason for him being able to commit unspeakable acts against people with absolutely no remorse is because he is uh, is a total fatalist. Um, he believes mm. it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. Everybody dies. Everybody's going to die. There's no there's no chance of change of changing the final outcome. And that, as I understood it, was why he's so very depressed at the start of the movie is because he's realized that everything he's ever done actually does have moral consequence because uh humanity isn't going to end anymore now so he kind of has a a, a rational remorse uh, after the failure of his own kind of rational assessment uh through his his moral paradigm
2: yeah that's true i suppose he's the he's the version of the joker who actually like considers the, you know, who, who later comes to some kind of consideration of his actions, um, whereas, obviously, the Joker, Batman's Joker is a psychopath who just doesn't care. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Exactly and he, he, he comes to that, which is why Ozymandias... Okay, guys, spoilers, if you didn't realize that this was going to contain spoilers. Um, but, which is why Ozymandias kills him right in the beginning of the movie, is, you know, he needs to remove um the comedian and also because the comedian was the only person who could the only human being who could stand toe to toe with Ozymandias as a fighter um but yeah i mean i you know that still it still leaves the question you know this question of whether this utilitarian response is something that you you can morally justify um and well i see like my my initial response is just like well, it's I I wonder if the um, point of whether it's morally justifiable is is even the point of the argument because I just don't think it's necessarily efficient or effective. So we know that Ozymandias' plan has is going to fail because at the end of the movie you see Rorschach's journal at, at the steps of the newspaper, which is you know showing like oh well the newspaper will print an expose uh, showing that whatever whether it's a squid alien or Doctor Manhattan. Has attacked New York was fabricated, and you know Russia and the United States will go to war with each other, or you know again. So it's just a no. That's ridiculous. That sounds
0: like fake news to me.
2: Well, I don't know when your news is reporting that. I when your news is reporting that a giant squid monster just attacked New York. Like, (laughs) I suppose in the age of in the age of Trump. Like, yeah, then. We can be like, well, the alternative facts speak to the legitimacy of the <laughs> of the squid monster.
0: Uh, <laughs> um, but now, perhaps we we do get to uh, kind of a practical question about um, whether or not, in fact, global peace uh, really required a squid, or the or the destruction of New York. Uh, perhaps all it actually required was the absence of Doctor Manhattan. That
1: yeah, is the, that's a key. That's probably the most important <sighs> question. Get to because if it does require the absence of Doctor Manhattan, that presumes some a necessity in the balance of world power. That's saying that the existence of Doctor Manhattan and his ideological allegiance to the United States in the 1980s supported or get lent an unchallengeable amount of power to the United States as um, um, as a contender to world power in the vis-à-vis the USSR mm. and the Soviet, well, the Soviet Union. Um, so the Soviet Union would have to acknowledge that any ballistic missile system that they could possibly launch against the US would be taken out of the air by the effect of God mm. you know, Dr. Manhattan. And so they would have to relinquish their power and politically um, concede. Whereas if Dr. Manhattan does not exist... Then there's, it is an effective Cold War that nobody needs to fight, nobody needs to launch weapons. And although there is the fear of that, the rationality, and this is why I asked the question, I mentioned the irrationality of the film, or that was brought to light in the film, is so interesting. Is because the rationality of real life is precisely what ensures that each person will, each self-seeking survivalist will be, ins- will be incentivized not to launch the weapon because they don't want you know, their are launch to be picked up by the by the enemies, who will in turn, you know, launch weapons on them. Therefore, assuring the destruction of both parties.
2: Mm. Well, I think I mean now you're getting into what we call MAD, which is inter- uh, international mutually assured destruction. Um, and Kyle, because you're our guest, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot. Uh, can you mm-hmm. give us what like what uh, your Broad understanding of what mutually, astru- mutually assured destruction means in, the world. If Peter ever way. gets it right, yeah. Let's oh. let's see if you ha- remember your international relations stuff.
0: <laughs> uh, so I think I'm I'm going to deal with this in in two levels. The first one is oh, that, such a uh, debater. <laughs> <laughs> the, fir- the first, uh, you know, largely speaking, I think that you've explained much of the dynamic there already. But uh, uh, kind of formally, what you've got is uh, if if a country launches a, f- a first strike against another, then um, presumably, if they were not completely annihilated, then a second strike in response to that would lead to the annihilation of both parties. And in in a situation where we at least know who our enemy is, um, what happens is that it's completely irrational for us to impose the massive societal cost of destroying our civilization um, on ourselves or on the other party. And therefore, everybody hovers their Fingers over the button, but nobody actually presses the button because it would be completely mm. irrational to do so. Um, mm. And that uh, this idea is uh, is explored quite a lot in in the question of game theory, um, which really you know had uh, had an enormous amount of application during the course of the Cold War, but of naturally it has a lot of application in economics and and game playing um but it it is essentially the mathematical modelling of this precise problem where we have people who are in competition uh they might not Know exactly what the other person's decision is going to be, but they can fairly assume that they know the set of the other person's strategies, and therefore, before they make their move, they have to consider in advance the responses of the other party. And it's that kind of consideration of of what how the other party is going to react that leads to the the conclusion that nobody's going to press the button. Mm.
2: Yeah and I like I think I, that's I, I do love game theory. It's not something that Brock and I really discussed that much on um this podcast yet. But I mean I think Probably it does because have...
1: it, would take, it, it would be a five-hour podcast to all the real time strategy games and risk
2: <laughs> Yeah and but I think like for our listeners who might not have come across I'm sure you've heard of Smart people saying, oh, well, in game theory, uh, the outcome is predetected on blah, 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 blah. But it's, yeah, as Kyle says, it's, you know, it's basically considering what you know versus what your opponent knows and taking that into account mathematically. Um, and I'm sure for all of you who have played board games and play, especially Risk, when you are considering attacking uh, somebody who you might have uh, maybe a cordial alliance with, you have to take into account what's going to happen on their turn. How is this attack going to affect everybody else on the board, and what are their actions going to be towards you? And that's why it's such a good, uh, a, you know, a good explainer of of the nuclear worlds, because uh, you know, post World War II, where Russia and everybody knew that America had the nuclear weapons. Now, after the new King of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Suddenly the world was a very dangerous place because America could obliterate a country um, and nobody else could, um, which is why Russia raced so quickly to get to the nuclear weapon. And once they had both developed uh, what's called second strike capacity, which is basically the ability to launch nuclear weapons after you've been nuked, um, it meant that neither could actively nuke each other. Um, because if you got nuked, you were going to get nuked. And as Kyle says, it's just not worth the the cost to to do that. So it, it leads to a stalemate, which is why we had the Cold War in the first place. But that's why Watchmen is so interesting, because Watchmen introduces Dr. Manhattan, who, which I, the one thing I don't understand about Watchmen is that there's a scientific experiment that goes wrong that creates Dr. Manhattan. So surely everybody's response to that should be, let's and a good every good scientist response should be let's duplicate that shit and create an army of Doctor Manhattans. Like that's yes, let's, that's a rush
0: up a let's start up a chain of experiments where we're going to try and make mistakes with our nuclear program again and again <laughs> until we get a Doctor Manhattan of our own.
2: Well that's that would be the best thing. Maybe he could be red. He could be a red Doctor Manhattan and then you know to balance of power again.
0: <laughs> kind of kind of like a um, red Superman.
2: Yeah, you never know. <laughs> but because Doctor Manhattan's there and after the Minutemen get disbanded and outlawed due to being assholes, um Doctor Manhattan and the comedian start working for the United States government and they go and fight in Vietnam. And I you guys jump in whenever you know, whenever you want. Uh but my understanding of Vietnam is that it was both a client war as well as a um a direct war. So, you know, American troops were on the ground, um, helping out the southern Vietnamese, um, and the Russians were supporting the Viet Cong from the north. Um, and the America just couldn't put enough troops on the ground. I mean, there were a whole bunch of problems. The Viet Cong were attacking the Americans at night. The Americans didn't know what the hell was going on, but. In, if America had, like, full-on invaded Vietnam, like, with 100% commitment and really wanted to go for it, they risked escalating the conflict to a point where there could have been a nuclear yeah. exchange. But in the in Watchmen's world, now they have Dr. Manhattan, and Doctor. there's that cool scene in the movie. I don't know if it's cool. I sound like an asshole. It's not
1: cool. <laughs> where Dr. Not, Manhattan it's is just, just... one of the most disturbing scenes you could ever watch.
2: He's just disintegrating the Viet Cong as he's walking, and he's like... He's, he's he's giant and he's just killing everybody. Um, so in this world now, America won the Vietnam War, which immediately puts Russia a step back. And now you, as you as you said, you don't have a balance of power anymore. With Doctor Manhattan under the control of of America, he yeah you, nukes no longer matter. But then I would ask both of you because part of Ozymandias' plan in the movie is to get Dr. Manhattan to leave Earth um, because he wants to set up Dr. Manhattan as the bad guy, basically. And he does that by... by I think what he does is he gives a whole bunch of people cancer and he convinces everybody that close proximity to Dr. Manhattan is what gave them cancer. And so everybody hates Dr. Manhattan, and then <laughs> it's just Dr. It's a Manhattan PR leaves nightmare and goes for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and Dr. Manhattan leaves, goes to Mars, and he builds his like weird glass clock palace. Uh, cool. But once Dr. Manhattan has left, shouldn't the world now kind of rebalance, or, or has the power dynamics been messed up so much that it can't?
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe the moral question about uh, you should. Should Ozymandias give several people cancer in order to ensure <laughs> world peace? I, I mean, maybe we can just tick the box there and say, you know what, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's but there, there, two, there are several well, there are two layers of questions there. Um, is one is will the never mind the ethical implications? Will the rational? Can we assume the rationality of all parties involved to uphold the mutually assured destruction rationale that would ensure world peace even if it is some uh, latent form of Cold War um, and to then we can consider if not what are the, if the implications what are the ethical implications and questions we need to ask and justify um, do and what you know what are the ethical actions we need to justify doing in order to ensure that the failure to ensure mad would be made up by say, Um, getting, uh, bringing, bringing Dr. Manhattan back or sending him away or whatever situation we need to change with the Watchmen around. Mm. Um, so there's one where in the, in, in the universe of the Watchmen where we can say if Dr. Manhattan is around, there is no mutually assured destruction. There is a unipolar world, um, with the United States leading the world as it is now, um, or if we send, it, if he's sent away, um, and he's convinced by a few of his colleagues who are now of cancer um, that he should that he's the cause and he should leave. That that brings about some world peace. Whether that's justifiable? Um, so you know, they're both political and ethical questions to be asked and answered there.
2: And like i don't know like what do you think i I, I mean it's weird to say like if if we you know is it justifiable to give a bunch of people cancer in order to achieve world peace um i mean that's a weird thing i don't know i don't like i can't see that ever cropping up as a real uh you know a a real scenario that we would ever have to deal with in the real (laughs) world um so i don't want to answer that question because it's just so weird like Five people's cancer is that worth world peace? Like, yeah, maybe. I, I mean, from a utilitarian perspective, definitely. <laughs> I don't well, want to justify start, giving people cancer.
1: <laughs> well, let's start with Ozymane's, um final uh, proposition, which he follows through on,
2: which is: can
1: we let, let's destroy New York City, and maybe people will get the message that way? Right? What do you think of that?
2: Um. See, I would still say. That any world system, based on the, I mean, based on that kind of destruction, like you've just destroyed an entire city, so, and you've killed, what's the population of New York, 7 million people? Um, and in the 80s, I think it was about 6, but now it's close to, it's 9. Right. so you've killed a a button of people. Um, but, you know, how many people are dying? In the conflict that is arising in the Soviet, U- uh, you know, the, in the Soviet Union. Because one of the things that you have to understand is that from that the watchman is set during the Cold War. And from the people in the eighties point of view, the, the uh, nuclear exchange is inevitable. It's just a matter of time before Russia and America start slinging weapons at each other. We know from hindsight that, you know, the Russian economy by that point was pretty much failing and even with or without dr manhattan the fact is the soviet system wasn't working so they were still going to collapse by 19 by uh, 1890 by 1989 or you know with the fall of the berlin wall so given that you've just killed six to nine million people um in exchange for a world that is that now has peace between the two superpowers, I mean, you not you haven't necessarily dealt with you know all the small conflicts going on in Africa or Southeast Asia or, or anywhere else in the world. Like, there's no reason that suddenly the two superpowers, are, you know, making peace with each other stops those conflicts. Um, but we know that the Soviet Union is going to come to an end anyway, regardless of Doctor Manhattan. So, I suppose by you know, no, it's not justified.
1: Okay, so let's keep it then in the eighties. Let's pretend we don't know what we know now. Let's pretend that. Um, We are so scared of the two greatest world powers going to war with super weapons against each other. It seems almost inevitable. And we have a a near guarantee that we will join sides if we can find a common enemy like Dr. Manhattan um, or a giant squid or whatever.
0: I suppose one of the questions that comes up from... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. No, so I want
1: to just finish by saying if, if you say yes, we should do that. The sides would be to then my response would be to what end? And, and to what point are the, are the Russians and the Americans going to decide, right, let's fight and defeat the giant dead squid, let's banish um, and criminalize Dr. Manhattan, or do whatever we need to do to make sure that the tragedy of New York doesn't happen again? And then how long before we start fighting again? Um, so I, I'm almost always going to take a deontological approach and say there's no guarantee um, even though it seems likely there's still no guarantee that human conflict is going to end and that uh, the threat of nuclear weapons or uh, a nuclear war will, will not come to pass and so and so we shouldn't take the risk of
0: destroying that many people
1: uh, just to just to live in uncertainty for a few years
0: yes i think one of the questions is uh, kind of some of the low hanging fruit there is will it really be a perpetual peace um i mean mm-hmm. as soon as people reach some level of stability then there's always uh, as long as there are great powers there will always be the thought in the back of their minds which is at what point will the other power potentially defect and what is going to prevent the other power from leaving our alliance in order to in order to pursue a world of peace without us in which we don't have a say so it doesn't really eliminate competition um, it doesn't really eliminate competition from the international system at all. It just delays it.
1: Yes. So at that point, so, so um, if we follow Ozymandias's final action, I would say that is that is an irrational, that is an unethical thing to do to to blow up uh, New York. But let's walk it back a bit further. In fact, I would, yeah, I would say even though he is, he seems irrational. He seems almost the character is deluded by his power. Um, you know, if he was slightly restrained in his, uh, (laughs) in his pride or his vanity, if he was slightly less smart, maybe he, um, would use his more modest intelligence to pursue a more middle of the path route. Like, let's convince Dr. Manhattan to leave Earth. Um, and let's do that by making him, by tapping into his conscience. Let's make him feel guilty about inducing cancer cells into his working colleagues. Um, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I think that the problem here also is that uh, what Ozymandias wants is he wants, he does want perpetual world peace in some way. And the thing is that even if Dr. Manhattan does, uh, say Dr. Manhattan leaves, then the universe in which they live becomes remarkably similar to the universe in which we live. But perhaps an unsettling thought is do we live in a world where mutually assured destruction is going to guarantee our futures? This is a question that uh, I'm a fan of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic sci-fi. So, <laughs> um, so th- I mean, this is dealt with quite a lot in fiction. There's some really interesting, um, some interesting takes on various problems with mutually assured destruction and how they might still play out into war. Um, I don't know, Brock, if you You've uh, read um, *A Canticle for Leibowitz*. Uh, you should. It's got uh, it's got kind of a, a lot of uh, uh, Catholic over and undertones in it, and it's about no, a guess. it's yeah and it's about a world that's set in in the distant future where humanity has wiped out most of itself uh, through nuclear war. Um, and, uh, and it, it proceeds to kind of do the same thing again as, as the march of time goes along. And one of the main things contributing towards that is the eventual emergence of anti-ballistic missiles and reliable forms of nuclear defense. And Mm -hmm. that world, uh, if you think back to George W. Bush's administration, uh, there was a stage there where a positioning of anti-ballistic missiles uh, and research into that field really was starting to make at least a few people feel somewhat tense because the pursuit of that uh, naturally begins to destabilize the system that we've got today. But if we flash 100 years into the future, what sort of society might we be living in then i mean is it possible that the next the next spacex launch is going to be one that can intercept uh, any intercontinental nuclear weapon and, and what does that mean for the future of humanity so if you take the long view maybe ozymandias is right let's blow up major cities now
2: well i see now having a moment to think about it i feel like you know when you start discussing mutually assured destruction that's you know it's just one part of a realist interpretation of international relations but you still have to take into account all the other things so you know just logically conclude you know logically extending what's going to happen with um, even with the two superpowers who are opposed to now dr manhattan and let's say dr manhattan has left and gone to mars and the world is still terrified of you know dr manhattan but the, as more and more time goes on, there is no reason to to think that these two powers are still not going to act in their own best interests, which is a realist assumption that powers, you know, global powers do not know what other powers are going to do necessarily, and in that case, they, you know, they plan for the worst. So that and that could again lead to security tensions between. You know, global superpowers, and I think that that is what you see today. We're seeing large-scale tensions, um, especially because of a huge amount of uncertainty. So, you know, Russia, as you, as you said, you know, Russia's been on the defensive ever since well, since the end of the Soviet Union, really. But you know, George W. Bush, uh, you know, wanting to station nuclear defense uh, missiles and that missile shield in Eastern Europe was a huge problem for the Russian administration. Um, And, you know, the Western influence on Eastern Europe, the acceptance of the, of the Ukraine into Western institutions, like all of these things have been uh, a big issue for Russia, making it feel less and less secure in the world. And that's led to security concerns on both sides now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the two States are going to go to war. I mean we live in a state of peace between Russia and America right now. Uh, you know we have a state of peace between America and China as well. It doesn't necessitate the blowing up of, a, of an entire city. And you also have to take into account the fact that you know why the only reason that a country is going to launch a nuclear weapon is to a certain extent I think a a measure of last resort. You know that that kind of global war has to be in the country's country's best interest. There has to be a like a reason to go to war in the first place. a uh, One that you think at least that you, 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 calculate that you are going to come out better than you were before. Um, and that's, I, you know, I just, I don't see that happening in, even in Ozamandias' world or, um, or our world. And I don't think he needed to blow up an entire city to do that. I don't think we need to blow up New York and, and blame it on aliens in order to like get everybody to, to come to terms and be peaceful. Um, when the world is yeah. relatively peaceful. well, if if I could interject, yeah. I think
0: I think though that yeah. uh, you know, if I could paint a different scenario, is that the the assumption of being rational might only hold up so much, if you have uh, watched or read uh, another lovely piece of fiction, The Sum of All Fears, that paints Mm. a much more realistic scenario in which, due to the problem of attribution, in other words, who is launching the strike against us and why... Um, we have a situation where the two, <laughs> spoiler alert, the two world powers are about to nuke each other. But in fact, it was a set of, it was essentially a terrorist act supported by a rogue general in the Russian state that led to the two powers being really quite prepared to start a serious war a nuclear war with each other and that is is a scenario that i think that uh, you know a lot of planners take into account which is with a lot of stray nuclear weapons uh, with the potential problem of um individual people, even if you can assume that a state or the decision-making apparatus of the state can essentially be rational, individual people can be total nutcases. And if somebody Mm -hmm. who has that level of power can start to be belligerent against other states, the signal could be misinterpreted as one of an act of war or an act of escalation. And in a situation where uh, being on the precipice of war is what is supposed to guarantee you peace... That precipice looks a, a hell of a lot more daunting than the oh well we're, we're all rational agents, we're definitely not going to kill each other, but humans are imperfect, and therefore accidents uh, with a lot of serious consequences are uh, are quite possible.
1: okay, but I still have but that, that still doesn't um, incentivize me to destroy New York um, and, make, and blame Dr. Manhattan as it was in the film. I would, it does lead me closer to supporting his, the criminalization of him or, or incentivizing um, his his deportation from Earth. If somehow you could get him to, to live on Mars. Because, um, you know, it could only be about the power of persuasion since we not don't have any weapons strong enough to get him to force him by coercion. Nevertheless, if to the extent that I do have faith or that we should all have faith in the rationality. Presupposed by mutually assured destruction, the, the rationality that Ozymandias pre- presupposed when destroying New York, I think that it can it can hold up to that extent, um, to the extent that we could hope for for some uh, believable world peace thereafter. Mm-hmm. But is it? But to the extent that we should listen to Kyle and we should say actually there are there is a serious risk. Of some <coughs> idiot, some radical extremist, who, who perhaps even an Ozymandias himself, who believes a nuclear war is necessary, or like the type of Eltron character from the second Avengers film, um, that sits behind the the turnkey and pushes the button. If we if we pay heed to that risk, then perhaps we should keep Doctor Manhattan around.
2: Well, I mean, I would just say don't keep... Uh, yeah, keep Dr. Manhattan around, but don't give him to the United States. Give him to the UN. Um, you know, let let the UN deal with... It. <laughs> you know, they can send them around. He's a peacekeeping force all to himself. Um, I don't really agree with that. You don't want to give Dr. Um, Manhattan to the UN? Well, no. every action he take should be vetoed, so... <laughs> <laughs>
0: So we'd that's the same it, as
1: sending him to room. Mars. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, we'd have to discuss his character a bit more because he seems, while he seems aloof and estranged from human affairs, he's ideologically allied to, to the free world and to the United States as the political leader of that free world, especially as it was in the 80s. And so while maybe the United Nations could, could, have, an, you could have an argument for sending him there, I don't, you know, you'd have again, you'd have to be very persuasive in order to coerce him to go in there. Whereas, let's say if he's already on the side of, of freedom and he's trying to resist, you know, the totalitarianism of Soviet, of the Soviet Union, then let him just live in New York, do whatever nuclear research or particle physics research, physical research that he wants to do. And if everyone ever decides to launch a nuclear weapon, he can pop his head out the window, shoot it out the
2: sky, and go back to work. <laughs> yeah but that's i mean that is probably the best use of dr manhattan is to let him just be a, a scientist which is what he wants to be because i mean that is something we've kind of ignored in the watchman universe is that even though the watchman universe is set in the 80s there a lot of their technology is actually ahead of ours because of the fact that dr manhattan has developed like um uh, uh, cars that run on hydrogen and um things like that so you know, like global warming. I don't think is an issue for the um, for the Watchmen universe.
1: Yeah. So obviously, so if keeping Doctor Manhattan around is in the best interests of humanity, then how can
0: we rationalise Ozymandias' oh. positions and actions? Well, I think that we've actually hit onto another theme here, which is that uh, the pursuits of Doctor Manhattan. Uh, are to create uh, some sort of limitless energy, or at least to to make energy uh, very much available to, to people in the world to try and eliminate scarcity. So if mm. you are of the view that most human conflict originates due to scarce resources and competition for those resources, then you must ally yourself to Dr. Manhattan being a scientific researcher. If, however, you think that human nature is Uh, say biologically more hardwired towards conflict than that and is not strictly rational but more about dominance uh, or that competing ideologies will uh, and ways of organizing even a comparatively limitless amount of energy would nevertheless lead people into conflict then you're starting to tend towards the worldview of Ozymandias.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I, like, well, Brock and I have discussed this before in our in our episode on um, the you know the post scarcity society and in in a Star Trek utopian universe. Um, and I, and
1: we discussed it on last episode.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I think I, I mean, I stand very firmly on the fact that a large amount of human conflict is predicated on, uh, you know, the, the accumulation of resources and uh, the. the 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 need to to reallocate resources back to one's own social group or one's own nation or whatever um i mean that being said i think that there are still some conflicts that are you know based on ideas or idea ideologies and i think that the two can be difficult to tease out but yes I, i mean i think that if you said to dr manhattan like yeah let's uh let's see what we can do with uh you know, renewable energy that uh, is clean burning and everything's great. Like once he's done that, then then, yeah, I I think that it would take a large amount of the impetus out of the cold war. Um, I mean, I think it would change the American economy completely.
0: Yeah. I mean, we'd, we'd have to quite soon start moving towards potentially a more communist style economy because in post scarcity, you know, what is the point of competing anyway?
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, So the America might, you know, Doctor Manhattan might just make America commie, <laughs> um, and um, that's not necessarily a bad thing when you don't have a scarcity of resources. Yeah, but
1: what if you are the other opinion that the Soviet Union just wants to compete ideologically with the liberal West, and so no matter what Doctor Manhattan is working on, um, Gorbachev will continue to look for ways to outcompete the United States in whatever ideological faction he can create for Russia. Um, and so trying to make the society over there seem better in some way, whether it is bigger, whether it is more administratively controlled, whether it's more successful in space exploration, whatever it is. Uh,
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I, one would think that Dr. Manha- I mean, by Dr. Manhattan's characteristics, I would think that that technology would be shared. I mean, the Soviet Union might have been able to survive if it had, uh,
0: you know, f- free energy forever. Um, yeah, we we propose yeah. outsourcing. I mean, not outsourcing, uh, open sourcing Dr. Manhattan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, let's all share now, Dr. Manhattan. Doesn't matter that he's see, an individual who has his own wants and needs. He needs to work <laughs> for the system. <laughs> yeah,
1: but he's happy to work for a system. That protects the interests of of, of of America and uh, and the world at large, but he's very acutely aligned to to the ideological um, to the ideology of the United States, especially as it was in the eighties. Mm. So to tell to try again to try and get him to break out of a system that would probably patent his research, is would probably limited to exclusive um, research rights within the U.S. So to benefit some technology producer in that country, um, It's going to, it would probably end up creating a technological or research rivalry, but predicated on an ideological challenge posed by the Soviet Union. If the Soviet Union did not have a universalist, communitarian, communist ideology that it was trying to use as a means of political expansion throughout the world, Um, then maybe I would agree that Dr. Manhattan being around is a good thing. But since the conflict arising from the Soviet Union is ideological, it might not go away.
0: Well, I I suppose the question is, is it really that ideological... Um, or, or is it yeah. simply rational? You know, I, I am one state. You're another state. We're competing over interests. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm gonna ultimately actually just circle back to, to kind of agreeing with you because I do think that fundamentally you can't solve all forms of scarcity. I mean, the next one would mm. certainly be my, the people of my nation or my sort of people need more living space. So I, I annex this in the name of Liebenstraum or something. Thing like that, um, you know, even if, we, even if we do solve the energy problem and access to it. But one thing that I'd like to add to this is that the control of Dr. Manhattan is not really squarely in the hands of the United States in Watchmen. They are very, um, they paint him as being kind of, as very much an independent agent, even though he's ideologically aligned with them. He's also disinterested and i think that perhaps you underestimate the extent to which he's disinterested um because both in terms of being able to share technology he probably just would but you could i think make the case that if america did launch nuclear weapons at russia that there's quite a fair possibility you could you could roll the dice on dr manhattan plucking those out of the sky as well
2: i think so yeah
0: um
2: and I agree with that, that he's,
0: he, I mean, he. I think he falls on the American side
2: and he would support America to a certain extent, but yeah, he would, you know, the fact that he joined the Minutemen and, you know, he he does stand for, you know, helping people, I, I can't, I can't imagine that he would want to see anybody get, like, super-nuked. Um, that he being... walked
1: around the fields of North Vietnam, just incinerating the living body.
2: Yeah, but that's true. However, that was like relatively soon after his transformation and when you see him recount that, you can see how how much it affected him and how he wishes he hadn't done it. Um and you can see his uh, when he has that fight with the comedian in the bar and the comedian, you know, the woman walks in and says that the comedian got her pregnant. And he, the comedian shoots her. How shocked he is at that action. Um,
0: and but like that almost failure, makes him quit. The, but part of the problem there is that the comedian correctly indicts him there for failing to act. Because he watches mm. this, is shocked, and the comedian says something about how oh, you could have turned this into a bouquet of flowers. Uh, and yet he failed to do so. Hmm. Because he's ultimately also just a bit disinterested in human affairs. So he's really unreliable in a lot of different respects. Who he would act for, would he act, would he uphold the greater good or would he be off building a clock on Mars just because that's what he felt like? And if he came home one day and found that half of the world was in ashes, he would go, Oh, nuts. I really shouldn't have gone to build that clock. No sense crying over spilt milk. I'll go and start a new universe <laughs> elsewhere.
2: Yeah. And I think that that's, that's But just like looking at his actions and going back to what Brock was saying earlier, the one thing that he does want to do is work as a scientist. He was a scientist before he, he works as a scientist. And, you know, be, before everybody started getting involved in his business, he did just want to kind of work on his perpetual energy machine. And he was very hmm. happy to do that to the point that he was neglecting his super hot girlfriend. Um and going back to what Brock said, like if you just leave him to do that, and he he succeeds in creating perpetual energy for the for if he does it for only the United States, then immediately the United States becomes more powerful in this in this world, and I would say starts to shift the world towards a more unipolar world, which is relatively stable. Mm. Um, or he shares the technology between the United States and Russia and everybody else. And we enter into a new golden age of human, you know, human living, because there is, I still think that there is less possibility of conflict. Um, and, you know, it, I i understanding what you said, Kyle, about like there would still be conflicts over land probably. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but, you know, we can expand into the universe with this new technology. Like we can start colonizing other planets like this. I, I still think that at the end of the day, the there are better options in that universe that go to go back to our original question completely make it makes um, Ozymandias' decision to nuke <laughs> <laughs> New York completely um, unjustifiable.
1: Yeah, I think the character is deranged, um, and regardless of whether we think, I mean, we could argue about whether we think Doctor Manhattan should leave or we should stay. Um, but if he's going to leave, we don't think that the, the means Ozzyman is pursued to get him to do that would justifiable. Um, and then personally, I'm, I'm, I'm more deontological, so even when it comes to the, even when it comes to infecting the. Uh, his colleagues with
0: cancer. Well, I mean, considering to the... considering we're putting options on the table. Um, here's a here's a little moral question for for you guys, but I think particularly for Brock, the deontologist. Tell me if instead, uh, Mandius decided to team up with Doctor Manhattan in order to isolate the bonobo anti-conflict gene and figure out a way of dispersing that as a gene therapy into the entire of humanity. To cause them to cause humans to instead start making love madly every time they felt that they were a bit upset with another party, thereby removing forcibly, because it is an act of violence, forcibly changing your genetic code to remove the impulse for conflict. That would result potentially in perpetual world peace. It would also mean humanity isn't what it is anymore. Mm. And you would have done this violently, but uh, nobody would have died, and arguably nobody would be hurt by this. So, what would you do then? I
1: definitely
0: would not like encourage that. <laughs> so, so you're against. Uh, to summarise, you're against perpetual peace then in the bonobo human future. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is a straw man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think. I mean, I would be against that as well, but. I mean, I think my initial gut reaction is to be against it because I'm also much more deontological. But in order to rationalize it, I would just be like, taking away humans' ability to be aggressive might not necessarily be the best thing. Yeah, Um,
1: that's the point I'm against as well, we need conflict. Um, We don't necessarily need large-scale violent conflict, but we need to be able to to have conflict with each other and to compete with each other. Oh, why, if I I may ask? Well, because in in interact in human interaction, it often brings out it it forces one to consider so many different possibilities that it forces innovation. You have to you have to come up with new ideas in order to to survive. I don't
0: know, but doesn't pressure do that? Not conflict. I mean, if I have if I have pressure against uh, you know against the natural world or against somebody else, and I have a negotiated solution and a and a and an impetus. You know, say we're both gonna starve, um, but instead of fighting each other for the fruit, we decide to make passionate love and then divide the fruit in half. Uh, is there then a need for conflict?
1: I think the, the, the conflict, if, you had to lo- if one of us had to lose and not get the fruit, we would either accept why we lost and then try to figure out a better farming method, or try to find a new place where fruit grows. It would force us to. To become more resourceful, rather than just splitting the fruit, the only fruit that we think.
0: Ah, but if we split the fruit and we're still both hungry, then don't we both go off farming? No, we'd probably
1: uh, just go back. We go back to subsistence living. We'd be a mediocre society.
0: Well, I I think that that's potentially a fair point. I don't think that it's absolute, um, because I think that. I am not in favor of genetically manipulating human society, by the way. But nevertheless, I do think <laughs> that uh, I think that we place an overemphasis on the value of conflict. I think that that's a. I think that maybe that's a conservative value that you have, Brock.
2: Um, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's difficult. Obviously, I mean, the, these things don't have answers, but. I think that, I do think that historically conflict between human beings is important. And I'm not necessarily saying, uh, you know, armed, armed violence, but com- competition is important. Um, whether that's between, you know, competing for a, a place at the table with a sibling or, you know, competing for something with your neighbor. I, you know, it drives up ambition. It drives up. The ability, you know, it drives up the, the thinking through solutions, making things better for yourself. Um, I mean, and I think that that competition can be, it doesn't necessarily have to be violent, but it, it's, it, it does. I think it has to be there. when that competition is removed, I mean, you know, thinking about the world that you're creating, we may be a lot happier, uh, but we might not be as advanced. And hmm. well, know, I, mean- I don't know if you want to. I if you want to trade advantage fine. for happiness, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> No, I wouldn't say you'd be happy. You'd probably be a little content, uh, just sort of uh, pain, be pain-free, and satisfied, but uh, but not necessarily happy. I think there's there's a lot of uh, human value that comes out of of losing, out of, music, of uh, you know being getting the short end of the stick. And you, yeah, there's a lot of personal growth and development that can come out of that. And when I say conflict, obviously, I have to reiterate what you said, Peter. It's more in terms of competition that we should have differences and those differences should come to clash, Mm. but not to clash the cost of life with, you know, um, long term tangible harm that prevents you from. Can I use that forbidden debating term, self actualizing? Mm.
2: Yeah, um, I suppose so. but... yeah, maybe yeah like, I think that of, I
0: don't know you know one of one of the main other points here is that uh, sometimes conflict is not uh well I think that in the state system um, certainly under uh, under a game theoretic treatment of mutually assured destruction, for instance, there's no element there of conflict that is emotional the conflict itself is rational so even if we might want to make love to our neighbor it might just be the best thing to murder them instead and then light a candle for them afterwards yeah
2: i think they just
0: jump from one extreme to. well it was a thought experiment (laughs) it's not my opinion per (laughs) se
2: (laughs) but i think you know through through the uh Um, through the length of this conversation. I I, I think we've bounced around quite a lot of ideas, but one conclusion that I can draw is that we can say that uh, Ozymandias' track is not necessarily the best way to go to establish world (laughs) peace. Um, (laughs) I mean, given the amount of intelligence and uh, resources at his disposal, blowing up New York was not subtle and probably not as effective as he thought it was going to be.
0: I tend to agree. Uh, um, yeah, it, it, is, it
1: is
2: an interesting question, though. It is an interesting... And I think, given we are now at an hour, um, I think I would like to hear from our listeners on this. Go watch Watchmen. Um, the, whoever made Watchmen, please give us some money for punting your movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you scored
1: $50 million off that movie. You can share a few dollars with us.
2: Yeah, just straight up. Just Can I just get, like, I don't know, some residual from it for a little bit? <laughs> Um, but, yeah, that was a really great conversation, guys. Carl, thank you so much for watching. No, it was joining a great us. pleasure.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me. And if
1: any of you ever want any custom apps built, I'm sure we'll have a few requests for Carl and get in contact with us. Absolutely. Um, and uh, um, and we'll, we'll resume our discussion of ideologies
2: shortly. Absolutely. Oh, and uh, one other thing before we go, guys uh, the Lands of Leviathan podcast has created a Patreon page. Um, in order to try and raise some money for Brock and I, and I to improve our recording quality. Um, so you can see the link to our Patreon on uh, the Lands of Leviathan Facebook page. Um, I'll also put the link um, when I share episodes. The episodes will be on Patreon as well. Um, please uh, donate. Whatever you can would be a great help. And um, I think what we'll be doing is and thank you. people who donate. Thank you to the one, so, person. Oh, thank yes. you to the one person who gave us a dollar thank you to your dollar
1: will go will be invested in a new microphone system so you don't get so much background Uh,
2: thank you to tim clark uh for donating uh to us hey that's my buddy
1: Uh i'm gonna see him for a bride later i'll thank him him.
2: oh that's cool thank you tim awesome um and everybody else uh give us money please thanks (laughs) um thanks so much guys see you next time
1: Thanks for listening guys, we hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACARS tracks and articles. And if you would like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. Send us an email at landsofleviathan@gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F. L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N
2: And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.